David, thank you for the communion thoughts this morning. Appreciate that. Uh, we have something in common. We both have grandsons named Grant. Now, uh, I have to kind of share kind of interesting part about that in my family. My dad's first name is Lee. All right, some of y'all are making connections. Some of you are going, so, Lee, Grant, okay? Anyway, uh, my daughter-in-law, Grant's mom, is from Toledo, Ohio. Toledo is as high up in Ohio as you can go without going into Michigan, right on Lake Erie, right across from Canada. I mean, her family, they are uh, northern people with northern accents. And so the first time she came down to travel to Mississippi to meet my family, as we were going down, we were passing several Civil War battlefields. One in particular down as we turned to go down into Mississippi off of I-40. And so as we were passing this battlefield, there were cannon out in the field. And I turned to my daughter-in-law and said, Andrea, do you know what those cannon are? And she said, no, not really. I said, we're preparing for the next war of northern aggression. <laughs> to which she said, what war? I said, the war of northern aggression, when you northerners attacked us southerners. And she said, you mean the Civil War? And I said, oh no, war of northern aggression. That's what it was. And so to make sure I never forgot that joke, she named my oldest grandson Grant. Y'all just think about that. You know, and I'm like, well, you got me back since my dad's name is Lee. So anyway, but yes, Grant is a precious name for a grandson. You know, families are precious. Uh, my mom and dad, again, my dad's name was Lee Hugh. He went by L.H. Uh, Mississippi, you know, a lot of times people would go by their initials. My dad was a farmer growing up as a child. My grandparents were farmers, cotton far farmers there in Mississippi, as you could imagine. Uh, my dad, once he got off the farm, decided, I don't want to do this anymore, and started working for a company uh, that had a factory there in Ripley, Mississippi, and, and the company was based here in Nashville called Genesco. Just out of curiosity, how many of you worked for Genesco? I know, I know Glenn did. Some of you, I know, I know there used to be a factory downtown. Genesco literally uh, came from the uh, name General Shoe Company. You just take that and shorten it, and you get in Genesco. And, and so my dad worked for Genesco. He was a shoemaker. It, it was that simple. Mom stayed at home uh, most of her life. Uh, four children were born to the family. I was the second born, uh, an older brother who I lost many, many years ago in an accident, younger brother, younger sister. All of us stretched out. My brother was uh, five years older than me. My younger brother, six years younger than me. My sister, ten years younger than me. Mom and dad wanted to have four separate families. That's what they wanted to have. In many ways, they did. But uh, grew up going to church, and, and, you know, family was important. In fact, I, I have become the family genealogist. I do the family history for the Chapmans there in North Mississippi. And, and I've gone back and just kind of dug as far back as I could, trying to find out who are we and where did we come from. And, you know... Family is important. I used to say to my boys when they were teenagers, when they would go out uh, at night, I'd say, I want you to remember who you are, and then more importantly, whose you are. 
you are a Chapman. Don't bring reproach on that name, but more than that, you're a Christian. You belong to Jesus Christ. And that's still a message that I pass along, you know, to, to, to my kids. You know, remember who you are and whose you are. And I'll do the same thing with my grandkids. We are in a part of the mission of God of where we're looking at the blessings of the gospel. And a couple of weeks ago, Brian Shepherd began by talking about the gift of forgiveness. And Brian talked about the fact that how that because we have been forgiven, we need to learn how to forgive others and how that you live a miserable life if you don't learn how to forgive people. And he had that beautiful list of two records up here on the stage and how that all of us play one of the other of these playlists in our heads and the one that we play in, either the one of resentment or the one of forgiveness, will determine a lot of who we are as people. Last week, and, and of course, Acts 2.38 lists forgiveness as the first of the gifts or the blessings we receive. Last week, we looked at the, the Holy Spirit. And I simply talked about why is the Holy Spirit so important? Why do we need a helper? And the answer is very simple. That's, that's because we can't do it on our own. I mean, the very first covenant was a perfect covenant, but God found fault, the Hebrew writer said, with us, with the people. We simply could not keep the law. And so the Holy Spirit's been given to us. And the same text that talks about forgiveness talks about the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, today I want to talk about a third blessing that we have. And it has to do with the subject I just introduced, which is about being a part of the family of God. Becoming children of God. The text that Tony read this morning, coming out of John chapter 1, begins with the fact that Jesus came to his own. He came to his own family, and his own family didn't receive him. But John goes on to say, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And, and I know it's easy for us to read that and say, Yeah, I've heard that. You know, I've heard preaching on it. I've heard classes on it. So what? Let me tell you, there's something profound going on in John's gospel when he talks about becoming children of God. And he emphasizes it by saying, it's not children of natural descent. You can't run the genealogy of the children born into this family. It's not a, a, a human decision, a husband's decision. But it's a birth that comes from God himself. And so what you have as you look at this third gift, this blessing that God gives to us, is this concept of family going all the way back to the beginning. So what does it mean to be children of God? You know, after God had created everything, he said it was good. You get to the end of Genesis 1, in fact, it's very good. And then all at once, you get into Genesis 2 as he kind of is recapping the making of man, the creation of man. He looks at Adam and he says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Little insight into Les Chapman. I hate being alone. I hate quietness. I mean, June is right now visiting with grandchildren. Okay, she called me up a couple of days ago and she said, how are you doing? I said, the house is too quiet. Now, that has nothing to say about June. I mean, when June's there, it's still quiet. But at least I'm making a noise, you know. But when June's gone, I, you know, my mom used to talk about when, you know, we had lost dad, how that she would oftentimes talk to herself. I haven't gotten there yet, but I was getting close this week. 
You know, I mean, mom says, not only am I talking to myself, I'm starting to answer myself. And I'm like, mom, that's not good. You know, but I don't like, I don't like being alone. I never have liked being alone. And God knew that. And so what does God do? He creates the family. But he doesn't just create the family, but he creates the family to be a reflection of himself, of the Godhead. Every time I do a wedding, one of the things I say to the couple getting married is, listen, God created marriage and the family because he wanted you to experience just a little bit of what it's like to be in the Godhead. Let me illustrate how that works out. Here is kind of the typical symbol of, of the Trinity. I mean, it is a line that's continuous, and yet if you look, you kind of see three parts in it. So it's three parts, but it's really one in all. And, and, and I kind of like it. Of all you know, the simple descriptions, this is probably as good as you can get. But there's something about the Godhead and what the Godhead has experienced for all of eternity that God says, I want you to experience. It begins with this. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. I love the words that other translations use. He cleaves, he clings, he joins, he holds fast to. He embraces. June and I have been married now for 43 years. And oftentimes we love to just sit on the back porch in the swing and just swing. And, and we both share how that, I don't know of anything that's, that's better than sitting on a swing with my sweetheart and just enjoying life. And that's what God intended. God intended marriage to teach us something about love because God is love. And then he goes on to say that is why a man leaves his father and mother and and is united to his wife. They become one flesh. And so God wants us to understand love, but he also wants us to understand another characteristic, and that is the characteristic of unity. I mean, let's face it, when you've been married to someone, as long as some of you have been married, I meant to ask Bob and Melba this morning how long they've been married. I I think, Bob, isn't it close to 100 years? It's getting close, you've got to admit. It's it's a lot closer than 43, you know. But but you see Bob and Melba, and, and, and it's Bob and Melba. It's not just Bob, it's not Melba, it's Bob and Melba. And a lot of you are that way. You know that's the way it is. We become almost as if you can't say one without saying the other. It's that profound unity that we experience that has always existed in the Godhead. And then you turn to Genesis 4 and you have another characteristic about marriage. Adam makes love to his wife Eve and the end result is that she brings forth a child. The first child, Cain. But notice the language she uses there. With the help of the Lord, I brought forth a man. Something amazing happened. And all of us who have been there in the hospital to witness the birth of a child know what I'm talking about. I mean, all at once you're sitting there looking at, 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 at a little girl or a little boy. Sri Lan came in this morning and she says, I want to show you a picture. And it's a picture of a great-granddaughter. And you just look and you're like, amazing. This is astonishing. And what God does is he says, let me invite you into something else that the Godhead does. I want you to invite you into creation itself. And you understand a little bit of God's love for us when you have a child born into your family. 
You know, you don't have to... When June and I were expecting our first one, we went to a class on how to go through the birthing process. But it was interesting, we didn't go to a class on how to go through the loving process. The doctor didn't have to say, you know what, Les, you need to be taught how to love a child. Because you've never had a child, you don't know how to love a child. And and, and what you discover when that child is born is that you instantly love them. It is amazing. There is a connection there that you're ready literally to give your life at that moment for that newborn baby that you're like, with the help of God, look what we brought into the world. And the only thing better than the birth of a child is the birth of a grandchild. Amen? Because in the birth of a grandchild, you have that automatic love without all the hard work. You know? And, and, and again, that is just one of the blessings of family is being a part of creation. You know, when you turn to the Bible, one of the questions that's oftentimes raised is this. Is God the father of everyone, or is God just the father of believers in Jesus? I mean, what, what, what does the Bible say about that? And, and that's a little bit more complicated question than I think sometimes we want to make it out to be. We want a simple yes or no answer. It's not that simple. There is one sense in which God is the father of all mankind. I love the way Luke, for instance, does his genealogy. Again, I'm a genealogist. I love to sit down with Ancestry. I've had membership with Ancestry for years. Pop in someone's name and then just start following the trail. And, of course, Luke did that. Matthew did that in their Gospels. And in Luke's Gospel, what he does, whereas Matthew only goes back to Abraham, Luke goes all the way back to God himself. Look at the language. The son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam... The Son of God. Now, that's an unusual way of describing God. Jesus is the Son of God, but here you have Luke saying that Adam was the Son of God. And so in one sense, yes, God is the originator of all mankind, you and me included. And so in that sense, yes, He is our original Father. You have Paul saying the same thing in Acts 17. For in Him, that is in God, we live, move, have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are His offspring. We are His children. But Scripture also says there's another level of childhood. Of being a part of the family of God. And it's that other level that God is calling everyone into. Matthew... John and Paul, other writers included as well, but they're kind of the big ones. They, they look at what it means to be a part of the family of God. And so let me, let me just kind of walk through how they call us into the family of God and what that means. Matthew, first of all, will begin with Jesus as Jesus begins to introduce who God is. We read this beginning of you know, the Lord's Prayer, and again, we, we're so used to it. I don't know about you, but I grew up in a time when you still said the Lord's Prayer at school. You know, you'd stand, you'd say the Lord's Prayer, and then you'd say the Pledge to Allegiance. And so, you know, I, I was on up in age before they finally said you can't do that anymore. But, but in the Lord's Prayer, it begins with those simple words, Our Father in Heaven. And, and, of course, you look at that and you think, well, of course, what else would you say? You need to realize that most Jews in the first century didn't, didn't refer to God as Father, not at least in this sense. 
God was the father of the people of Israel. We'll look at that here in just a second. But God wasn't kind of our individual fathers. That's not the way the typical Jew looked at it. King, yes. Creator, yes. Lord, yes. But not necessarily father. In fact, Jesus took the concept of father so deep that it caused the people who, learned, who heard him just absolutely to become unnerved. I mean, they were like, uh-uh. You cannot call God father like that. Look over in John's gospel again. Here's Jesus speaking. My father's always at his work to this very day, and I too am at work. And, and however he said that, and I don't know what it was, you know, what word he was using, or, or why it bothered the religious leaders so much, but look at what the text says. For this reason, they tried the more to kill him. I've had people get upset with me. I've had people catch me at the back on a Sunday morning and chew me out. I mean, I've had people to come up and say, how dare you, and just get right up in my face. But I've never had one to pull a gun or a knife on me. I've never had one to go out in the parking lot and get a rock and say, we're going to take you out. You know, I, I've never experienced that. Jesus experienced that. And one of the reasons is because of the way he talked about God. I mean, they went on, he says, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And we all understand that concept. I mean, as a kid, my dad would say to me sometimes, you go to Mr. So-and-so, tell him you're my son. And what that meant was, you're going to get special treatment because of who you are. I, I still remember so well, years ago, going back to Mississippi, going to an old country store where my dad's first cousin owned the store. I hadn't seen him in years. His name was Curtis. And so I, walked, I think everybody in Mississippi got somebody related to him named Curtis. Right, Curtis? Curtis from Mississippi. So he understands that. So I go in. Curtis is there at the counter. I go, Curtis, you don't remember who I am, do you? No, I don't guess I do. I mean, he was country. And I said, I said I'm, I'm L.H. Chapman's son. And he looks at me and he says, you H's boy? Yes, sir. Oh, I hadn't seen you in forever. There was just something about being H's boy that made a connection. Boy, that was what was going on here. I mean, we're God's sons and daughters. And boy, there's something special about that. Going back to Matthew. Matthew describes a scene of where Mary and, and, and James and Judas and Joseph, the brothers of Jesus, show up. And someone goes into Jesus and says, your, your mother and brothers are standing outside. They're wanting to talk to you. They can't get in because of the crowd. And Jesus says something that is absolutely profound that I think a lot of us haven't, haven't ever even noticed. Look at what he says. Who is my mother and who, is, who are my brothers? And then pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. We might think of ourselves as brothers and sisters to Jesus. But we have some mothers to Jesus in here. And some of you ladies are like, what are you talking about? You know, in every church, there are what I oftentimes call matriarchs. Ladies who have just profound influence on the church. People oftentimes ask me, Les, do, do y'all have female elders in the church? And I go, oh yeah, we just don't publicly talk about that. 
But if you've ever been a church, you know the influence that certain sisters have in the church. Powerful influence, and rightly so. It was true in the first century. It's still true today. Jesus called these women, these are my mothers, who love my, my kingdom, who loves my father. They're the ones who treat me like I'm their son. And so here's Jesus just talking about what it means to be in the family of God. So what does it mean to be children of God? At least from Matthew's reflection, it is about somehow reflecting the character of the Father in heaven, doing his will. And, and of course, we all know that in our own families. June's mother's name was Natalie. My mother's name, Bonnie. And as we've gotten older, we both reflect our mothers, good and bad. And every now and then, June will see something, and as soon as she does it or says it, I'll go, whoo, Natalie's coming out today. To which June's response is always, Bonnie, do we really want to go there? As we talk about, you know, those little idiosyncrasies of our, of our parents. And I'm like, no, no, let's, let's let that one die, you know. But we do. We reflect the character of our parents. And as Christians, the character of our father. John goes a little bit different direction. Going back to the text a while ago, he has given us the right to become children of God. It's children born of God. He's comparing it to natural birth. And if you turn over to John chapter 3, you see kind of an exposition of that with Jesus and Nicodemus. As Nicodemus, when he hears the fact that you must be born again, he's thinking, really, can I enter my mother's womb a second time? Surely that's not possible. And of course the answer is, no, it's not possible. But there is a birth that is from above, a new, a second time. These are just some, again, some of the translations that they tried to take that word there in the original Greek and say, what was Jesus meaning by it? And of course, I think what Jesus was meaning by, about it is that the birth that we have into the family of God is a birth of God himself. Now, not in the same way Jesus was born. You know, you turn over to John three sixteen, the golden text of the Bible. You know, for God so loved the world that he gave his... Oh, King James said, only begotten. But, but the Greek is more accurately translated, one and only. It's that special son. It's the same word that's used to describe Isaac in the book of Hebrews. You see, Isaac was a special son. Now, Abraham had other children. He had Ishmael, of course, through Hagar. But there was this son of promise, this son that was unique, that was special. And that's what Jesus was. But we somehow, too, are born of God into his family. And yes, it doesn't rise to the level of Jesus, the incarnate God himself. But in some ways, it gets very, very close. We'll see that here in a moment. I love what Jesus does as he works through the Gospel of John. I mean, he does refer to God as Father all the time. But as it gets toward the end, He's going to make a switch. And you need to see the switch. Here's John 15. This is the night of the betrayal. I have this new commandment. I want you to love 
each other as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than to lay his life down for his friends. You're my friends if you do what I command. Notice again the language going back to Matthew. Who's my brothers and sisters and mother? The ones who do the will of my father. Same thing here. He says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. Now, I want you to notice that. I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. And so here you are on on the night before the crucifixion, and you are friends of mine. Watch what happens after the resurrection. Watch the switch in language. This is John 20. Mary's come back to the tomb. Jesus, appearing to be a gardener, speaks to her. She literally runs and grabs his feet. If you go back to the old King James Version, you have Jesus saying, don't touch me. That's not what he's saying. NIV translates it correctly here. Do not hold on to me. Because what Mary's done is she has literally come and wrapped her arms around Jesus' legs. I mean, how many of y'all remember your kids and your grandkids? You're going somewhere, and they come and wrap around your leg. No, don't leave. You know, and you're dragging them out, you know, into the parking lot, you know. Get to the car, shake them off, and then drive away, right? Ah, Maybe we didn't do that, but I've had that happen. You know, one of the kids, the grandkids. And, of course, you just love it when our grandkids grab you. Oh, you know, pops, don't go. Don't go. You'll stay. You know, and you're like, oh, I, I want to so bad, and I want to leave so bad, too. You know, you know how that goes. That's Mary. And Jesus is saying, I've got to go back to the Father. But look at what Jesus then says. Go instead to my brothers. Go to my brothers. Not to my servants, not to my friends, go to my brothers and tell them I'm ascending to my father and your father. You see, sin had been paid for. Death had been conquered. An opportunity to be full-fledged children of God has now been made available. Birth and water of the Spirit is possible. And now God can be our Father. I've got two sons. One calls me Dad. One calls me Pops. And they're the only people in the world who can do that. Now, my grandkids call me Pops as well, so they can call me Pops. But as far as my sons are concerned, and and I don't know why my youngest son, when he was in the fifth grade at Good Pasture, he just switched from Dad to Pops. I don't know why, but he did. But it was okay. I didn't have a problem with it. I always know which one's calling me. You know, when I pick up the phone and I hear dad, that's my oldest one. I hear pops, that's my youngest one. They have the right to call me that because that's who I am to them. And that's what John is saying here. I love when he writes in his first epistle, 1 John 3, 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. What? What has God lavished on us that is so great? Look at the language then, that we should be called children of God. And here's old John writing this letter, perhaps in his 80s, maybe in his 90s. And I can almost see him as he's writing those words. And then he adds to the end of it. Look at it. And that is what we are. I mean, don't don't miss that. 
We are children of God. We can call God Father. And then watch what Paul does as he comes into it. We'll see that here in a moment. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God and everyone who's love, who loves has been born of God and knows God. And if you don't love, you don't know God. So what does it mean to be children of God? Children who are learning to love like the Father loves. But it's Paul that takes it to the next level. Paul is going to come from two different vantage points. Paul was, first of all, Jewish. I mean, born a Hebrew of Hebrews, born a Pharisee of Pharisees, and yet raised in Tarsus, so that not only is he Jewish, but he also is Greco-Roman. He's a Roman citizen. And so Paul's aware of the Roman culture, but he's also aware of the Jewish culture. And so what Paul does is he takes these two and he combines them together. For instance, in Romans 9, he's talking about his love for his own people. And look at what he says. For I wish that I myself was cursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. And then look at what he says about his own people. He says, theirs is the adoption to sonship, the divine glory, the covenants. Theirs is the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and, and, and it's through their genealogy that came the Messiah. Who is God over all, forever praised, amen. Murray, this incredible doxology as he kind of brings this to a conclusion. But y'all, look at the very first one. Israel belongs to God because theirs is the adoption to sonship. You go back to Exodus chapter 4. And you'll see Moses going down to Pharaoh. And here's what he says to Pharaoh. Israel is my firstborn. And I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. And so theirs is this adoption to sonship as the people of God. But of course, Paul's going to take it much deeper than that. Galatians 3, now it's not that you're born into a family that's Jewish. Now you're children of God, notice here, by faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you who are baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ, it's our decision to become members of the family of God. And so Romans 8, going back to the Exodus motif, and following through with the Spirit said, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Much like the Israelites led by Moses coming out across the Red Sea into the wilderness become the people of God. But notice what he does with it. The Spirit you receive doesn't make you slaves again though. They had been slaves in Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. You're not slaves again. And, 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 of course, slavery has to do with fear. But he says, instead, the spirit you received brought about your adoption, your adoption to sonship. And so you have a new relationship with God. Some don't grow up in families where the relationship of parents to children is healthy. I know Brian could get up here and speak for hours about that. It's why Paul would say to the Ephesians over in Ephesians chapter 6, Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. Don't be so harsh that you drive them away. But bring them up in the nurture, the admonition, the encouragement, the love of God. 
We, we as parents have a choice of how we raise our kids. We can be harsh to them as if almost they're not children, they're slaves. Or we can be gentle and kind and loving so that they cry out to us, Abba, Father. And of course, what Paul does here is he goes back and he grabs what Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane. There was something about Jesus' prayer there that just struck a chord with the early church. As, as Jesus prayed, Abba, Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, your will be done. And that calling God Abba became a core of understanding the depth of the relationship we have with God. I was on vacation with the family last week. And I watched as my grandsons called their fathers, Dada. They're still at that stage. Dada. Dada, can we go pick blackberries with pops? And of course, the running joke was, there may be bears out there. Well, if we see a bear, what do we do? And the answer is simple, run faster than pops. Which, by the way, is not hard to do. Not nowadays. Dada, can we do this? Dada, can we do that? And I sat there and I just listened to them as they referred to their fathers as Dada. For most of us, that eventually becomes Daddy. And then eventually becomes dad. And the only time I ever called my father, father was on Father's Day. <laughs> dad, I want to wish you a happy Father's Day. I don't know why we don't call it Dad's Day. But we call it Father's Day. I never called my father. I, I, want, I want to introduce you here to my father. No, I want to introduce you to my dad. You know, dad's a precious word. And Jesus used that word, that Aramaic speaking people, that Abba. I mean, that precious little word that children learn to refer to that relationship they have with the one who brought them into the world. And that's what God invites us to. And then finally, Paul also understood that there is another avenue about that relationship. Jesus had been born during the reign of a man by the name of Caesar Augustus. Now, to know the power and the influence of Caesar Augustus, we are leaving the month of Julius, or July, and going into Augustus, or August. That's why we have the month of August, is this guy right here. This guy was the great nephew of Julius Caesar, the reason we have the month of July, named after Julius Caesar. And when Julius Caesar was killed by Cassius and Brutus on the Ides of March, uh, he had no heirs. And so what he had done in his will is that he had left everything that belonged to him to his great-nephew, his sister's grandson, Gaius Octavius, oftentimes called Octavian. And, and, and when Julius Caesar was killed, Octavian immediately went to Rome to claim not only the power of his great-uncle, but also the wealth of his great-uncle and the influence of his great-uncle. And the next thing you know, he becomes the first emperor of Rome, Caesar Augustus. You see, because he had been adopted, he had become heir. And that became such an influence in the first century that you see Paul picking up the same thing. Now, if we are children, how? Children through adoption. But guess what has happened? Then we are also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Co-heirs 
co-heirs. With Jesus, with Jesus. I mean, there is something that is awaiting us that is just going to be beyond our wildest imaginations. And here is Romans 8, verse 23, as he says, we eagerly await for our adoption to sonship. You see, we don't have everything yet. We've got a lot. But boy, it pales in comparison to what's coming. Last night, I stopped at a convenience store. Bad decision. You don't stop at a convenience store when the Powerball is $790 million. Is it million? Boy, some of y'all going, yeah, absolutely. By the way, it was good to see some of y'all. No, I'm joking. Joking. But, but people, you know, they're buying the power. Why, $790 million? I mean, it may get up all the way to a billion dollars. If you're a child of God, y'all, that's pennies compared to what is awaiting you as an inheritance. Because all ours is the glory of being children of God. What does it mean to be children of God? We're children who have an incredible future and inheritance from our Father. And the more we come to realize that, the more we realize that what we have now is not important to what's coming in the future. There's an old song, country song, that says, All I want is a cabin in the corner of glory land. And while I appreciate the song and the sentiment of the song, folks, children of God don't live in cabins. They live in mansions. They live in the heavenly city of the new Jerusalem. They live in the presence of God, and they serve and reign with Jesus forever and ever. That is what it means to be a part of the family of God. And if you are not a member of that family, you become a child of God through faith in Jesus and baptism as you're clothed with him. Do that right now. As together we stand and sing.